Welcome to Heat of the Moment, a new podcast from FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. I'm John Sutter. Over the course of this series, we're going to look at the climate crisis from a number of different angles, including food, energy production, and deforestation. We're also going to explore the way that activists, journalists, investors, and others are finding new ways to combat climate change and to provide hope for a new way forward. Each episode will feature a comprehensive interview with an expert on climate, as well as an in-depth field report. Over the next few weeks, you'll be hearing stories from our team of correspondents, reporting from places like Niger, Brazil, Norway, and Turkey. We began working on this project almost a year ago, before the coronavirus pandemic. We understand that much of the world's attention is rightfully focused on that crisis. But that doesn't mean we should pause the conversation about climate. This is an issue also threatening livelihoods and lives now, and will be for many generations to come. And in both of these cases, we all could use a little hope. We realize that if anything lies ahead of us and we approach that from a defeatist attitude, chances are you will be defeated. Whereas if you approach anything from an optimistic, determined perspective, you at least have a better chance of getting to where you need to get. That's Christiana Figueres, one of the architects of the landmark 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change which set international targets for slowing global warming. She recently co-wrote a book called The Future We Choose, Surviving the Climate Crisis. We look at optimism not as the result of having achieved something much as we celebrate the Paris Agreement, but rather as the input to a challenge, as the strategy that we use to actually affect change. Because things are pretty complicated, But that doesn't mean that they're impossible. And above all, it doesn't mean that we have any right to just sit back, fold our hands and say, we're just not going to do anything on climate change. And we will turn over a very, very dangerous planet over to the next generation. Figueres finds many reasons to be optimistic. She points to global emissions as one of them. It is not true that greenhouse gases continue to rise. In fact, the last two years have been completely flat in emissions while GDP has been growing. That also comes on the top that the two years preceding that, we had a rise in emissions, but the three years before that, we had flat emissions. So we might just be on the cusp of uh, not just flattened emissions, but rather of the beginning of the descent of emissions, which is where we need to be. But she says, while the tide is turning, we also need to speed up that process. There's no doubt that climate change needs systemic transformation because energy pervades every single piece of human endeavors. So we have to be able to change that. But that change can actually be accelerated by public support for the change. And while this change is all-encompassing, it's truly huge. It doesn't need to be all-consuming. Literature shows that every time any country has undertaken a transformation for the better, it is only 3.5% of the population that is necessary to be in active resistance to the status quo until the tipping point is reached. So that's actually pretty doable. And that's what this series is all about, finding these pockets of society that are pushing forward. They're creating new agendas for governments, businesses, and individuals. And as Figueres says, it all starts with our attitude and our understanding. So we thought we'd take that advice to heart and try something a little different for our first story. 
Rather than travel to a remote place on the planet, we're going to take a little trip back in time. Reporter Adam Cole is using a little bit of audio magic to leap across centuries and pinpoint moments when critical decisions were made that altered the course of climate change history. He's on a mission to try to disrupt these key climate pivot points in hopes of saving present-day Earth from the global climate crisis. My time machine runs on plutonium, and I managed to get just enough of the stuff off Craigslist to power three round trips to the past. Three chances to change the course of the climate crisis, to create an alternate timeline where things are better. The only thing was I didn't know which dates to choose, so I recruited some experts to guide me. First up, Dr. Suchi Talati, a geoengineer with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Come on in. Okay. I'll just warm this up. Welcome to the time machine. Very excited to be here. This is the culmination of my sci-fi dreams. So where are we going to go? When, I guess I should say, and where are we going to go today? So we're going to go back to February 21st, 1989, um, to New York City. Okay, I'm just logging that in and... Initiating time warp. New York City, February 21st, 1989. So we've stepped out of the machine. Um, It's 1989, it's February. It's a critical time for climate science. At this point, we know that climate change is happening. We know that impacts are coming. A climatologist recently told the Senate that global warming is already here. The UN just formed the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And the new US president, George H.W. Bush, has promised to rally the world to address the problem of global global warming. warming. It can be done, and we must do it. The time machine dropped us off outside the Manhattan headquarters of the oil giant Exxon. Tomorrow, Exxon's board will meet to discuss how to respond to this coming storm. And their manager of science, Dwayne Levine, will give a presentation. And in this meeting, you know, he's going to say that, you know, the science of climate change is agreed upon. So it was this complete acknowledgement of climate change, which is fascinating to me. But he's also about to say that climate action is going to, you know, lead to huge costs for this company and we have to stop them. Exxon will commit to a simple plan. We need to emphasize the uncertainty around climate science and the immense costs of climate action and policy. In the next few years, Exxon will team up with other fossil fuel giants to launch a massive lobbying and communication effort. They'll put full-page ads in the New York Times, lobby politicians, and make media appearances. And it will work. There's this exchange from a 1996 C-SPAN show that captures their strategy pretty perfectly. Here's the show's moderator, Ann Nicholas. One thing that seems to be a common theme in discussions about global warming is a disagreement or a lack of consensus about how serious the problem is. Like much of the media at the time, she's treating climate change as a controversy, giving both sides equal weight. And I'm wondering, what is at the basis of that um, lack of agreement, even among scientists? First to respond is Alden Meyer from the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thank you. In a couple decades, he'll work alongside Dr. Talati. Right now, he's on C-SPAN to argue that climate change is real and dangerous. But like a good scientist, he's careful to qualify his statements. Well, there, there are remaining scientific uncertainties. Scientists are trained to lay out their caveats up front. But I think we would say that we know enough that this is going to be a serious problem. Meyer is reluctant to speak in absolutes. And the other guest, John Schlace, sees an opening. 
He's a lobbyist who's funded by Exxon and other oil giants. These projections are based on models, they're theoretical models. They're going to have to evolve a lot more because we want to be very sure that whatever actions we take are actions based on sound science. He puts the focus on the inherent uncertainties of climate science. But for someone who doesn't trust projections, Slace is very certain about the future economic impacts of climate action. If we tried to do that in the United States, it would cost five, six, seven hundred thousand jobs. As a result of all this lobbying, the U.S. will refuse to ratify an international climate treaty. And before long, climate denial will become official government policy. Climate action will be delayed by decades. I really think this point in 1989 is such an important step. They're getting their board of directors on this path to stop any and all responses. So, yeah, Dwayne Levine is going to give this presentation tomorrow. What do you want to do? I want to find him before this presentation, and I want to show him the opportunities that Exxon has if they invest in you know, wind and solar and battery technology and energy storage. Exxon could take a path to being the leader in this economic revolution. They could have that. We managed to catch Levine on his way into the building, and after a long talk with Dr. Talati, he seemed convinced. After grabbing some bagels, we headed back to 2020. Back in the present, a quick scan of the headlines revealed that we had failed. It looks like Levine didn't manage to change Exxon's behavior back in 1989. But Dr. Talati hopes fossil fuel companies can be influenced today. There has to be motivation for these companies to stop, to stop lobbying, to stop spreading misinformation, to start investing in the technologies that they didn't invest in in the first place. They have to start, you know, being a momentum for good, and they have to start being liable. I still had enough plutonium for a couple more trips through time, so I traveled to England to consult with writer, activist, and author of the illustrated guidebook, Can We Save the Planet, Dr. Alice Bell. Hello. So where and when are we headed? We're going to go to Glasgow in 1774 on the 7th of February. Initiating time warp. Glasgow, Scotland, February 7th, 1774. We stepped out of the time machine onto a bustling, muddy street. It is quite a new city. We've got quite sparkly new buildings that have been built off the wealth largely of colonialism and slavery. Britain's empire and population is booming, but the island has run out of trees, so they've turned to coal for fuel. We saw coal smoke rising out of a few chimneys above us. We're specifically on a bit of Glasgow, which is just by James Watt's workshop. James Watt, the Scottish scientist and inventor who had a popular unit of power named after him. James Watt is quite quiet, he's quite cautious, he's a bit of a nerd, and he's been working on a steam engine. Steam engines have already been invented to help pump water out of flooded coal mines, but they're horribly inefficient. Watt has been figuring out how to make them much, much better, but he doesn't yet have the financial support or business savvy to pull it off. Across the street, the workshop door opens, and a tall, slouching man with a tense expression walks east towards a park. James Watt's got this letter in his pocket from his friend Matthew Bolton, who's this guy in Birmingham. Matthew Bolton wants to sell stuff. He wants to make stuff. He's also a real PR king. And he's trying to recruit Watt. Come down to Birmingham, and together we will build your steam machine, and we will sell it to the world. Unless Dr. Bell and I stop him, Watt will go. By the 1780s, one of Watt's steam engines will be powering a flour mill. But it wasn't just flour, it wasn't just cotton, it was buttons and trinkets and all sorts of other things. Watt not only perfected the steam engine, he helped create the modern factory, mass production, powered by coal. And that is the origin, really, I think, of our fossil economy, you know? 
And off the back of, of what we did with coal comes oil, comes our use of natural gas. If we hadn't had this crucial relationship between Bolton and Watt, it could have been very different. Instead of James Watt, we could be all celebrating some great hero that had done some incredible development in water power, and we'd all be living some kind of water power-based lives. Okay, so how can we stop Watt from joining Bolton? I think we need to keep him in the university. I think he really likes science. We'll, we'll take him to a bar, we'll get him drunk, and we'll get him to sign a contract to stay in Scotland <laughs> and just study heat in a very theoretical way. Okay, and not we're practical. Gonna develop, yeah, not practical, very theoretical. So with a little money and a few drinks and a few more drinks, we convinced Watt to sign on to a permanent position at the University of Glasgow. We stumbled back to our time machine, then back to 2020. Nothing much had changed. Matthew Bolton must have found someone else to build his steam engine. This technology still brought about the Industrial Revolution, and now we'll need new technology to lower the price of that progress. We are at such a crisis point that we need all of human ingenuity, which will involve lots of new technologies. Technology is not going to save us in one kind of magic potion. It is very much part of the armory that we have. With just enough plutonium for one more trip, I took the time machine down to Medellin, Colombia, to visit Daniel Voskoboynik, an activist and the author of The Memory We Could Be, Overcoming Fear to Create Our Ecological Future. What's our destination, Daniel? So we're taking this time machine back to the 10th of August in 1492 in the Canary Islands. Initiating time warp, the Canary Islands, August 10th, 1492. We're coming to this time because this is when Columbus stopped in the Canary Islands to repair his ships. And there, anchored in the harbor under a nearly full moon, was Christopher Columbus's little fleet, the Nina, Pinta, and Santa Maria, with the royal Spanish flag waving in the midnight breeze. The crown, Spanish crown, want to establish dominion over new and far territories. They've sent Columbus westward to find a new trading route for spices. Once the Pinta is repaired, he'll sail for two months, land in the Bahamas, and meet the people who already live there. In 1492, we are looking at communities across the Americas, that are living, um, you know, I think to say in harmony is often sounds like a very idealistic phrase, but in a very creative, interactive and respectful relationship with nature. For example, right now in 1492, people in the Amazon are managing forests with controlled burns and people in what will become Mexico are building floating gardens that boost biodiversity. But after Columbus arrives, a combination of violence and disease will kill most of the people living in the Americas. Their cultural knowledge will be swept aside in favor of a different approach. The colonial period handed us an economic model which roots development in destruction. European prosperity and expansion will be funded by the labor of enslaved people and the short-sighted exploitation of nature. Once fossil fuels is added to the mix, you have a very dangerous cocktail. This economic model is perhaps one of the prime reasons why we have ended up in the current climate emergency. Okay, so what do we do now? We've got to do everything possible to stop those ships. If we can stop Columbus from reaching the Americas, maybe a less destructive way of interacting with nature will survive there. And in this alternate timeline, perhaps Europe won't have the wealth to spread its extractive economics around the globe. With Columbus and crew on shore for the night, I drilled some strategic holes in the ships and then set them ablaze. As the ships burned and sank, we ran back to the time machine. Back in present-day Colombia, things have changed a little. Everyone is speaking Portuguese, and Colombia is now called Cabralia. 
some explorer from Portugal must have made it to the Americas instead of Columbus. The era of colonialism still happened. We didn't manage to change history, but we can still learn from it. The way that we diagnose the climate crisis very much informs the solutions we propose. Once we start to grapple with colonial history, we end up, I think, with a perspective which is going to be much more useful for us in navigating the very, very difficult decades that we face ahead. History is full of other turning points that led us to this climate crisis, cultural shifts, technological breakthroughs, policy decisions. But you can't change the past. And now that I'm out of plutonium, neither can I. In any case, when it comes to taking action, there's no time like the present. That's reporter Adam Cole. And now for the interview. This month brings us the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. The first was back in 1970. Earth Day, a day dedicated to enlisting all the citizens of a bountiful country in the common cause of saving life from the deadly byproducts of that bounty. Back then, climate change was only something that some scientists and some activists cared about. But these days, climate change is getting all sorts of attention, including from some of the biggest celebrities around. It's been proven through science that climate change is due to human activity. What we do probably in the next 10 years will be crucial to the future of the planet. The effects of climate change are playing out around the world every day. And if we aren't radical and extreme and immediate in our changes, we're going to have to answer to our own kids. This is now about our industries and our governments around the world taking decisive large-scale action. Now must be our moment for action. You may not know this, but long before them came Ed Begley Jr. He's been a working actor for 50 years. You may have seen him in shows like St. Elsewhere or Arrested Development. The first thing you might want to change, though, is the name. You know, Sudden Valley conjures up the image of a sinkhole, no? He's also been in movies like Spinal Tap and Best in Show. Seen enough dogs today, have you? Dogs, yes. Big show. There's a lot of them here in the hotel. A lot of pretty dogs. A lot in here in the lobby. <laughs> but Begley would be the first to tell you that he's almost more excited about his environmental activism than he is about his acting career. Today, we welcome Ed Begley Jr. to talk about his lifelong quest to be an ambassador for a greener lifestyle. So, Ed Begley Jr., uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So, alongside um, the acting work that you do, you're also known as an environmentalist and especially as an advocate for action on the climate crisis. And I'm wondering if you could kind of set the scene for me. Like, how did you initially become interested in environmental issues? Like, how far back does that go for you? I grew up in smoggy L.A., horrible choking smog in the 50s and 60s. And so I, I got involved in 1970 with the first Earth Day. You know, there was an Earth Day event at Pershing Square in downtown L.A. I attended that. And most importantly, I didn't make it that one day of the year. I did a lot of stuff the other 364 days of the year. Also important is to note that I didn't go broke buying solar panels I couldn't afford in 1970. I was always and remain to this day a fiscal conservative. So I didn't go into debt doing things that were beyond my reach. I started recycling. I started composting and became a vegetarian. Bought an electric car for $950 cost me much less to plug it in than it cost to buy gasoline in 1970. Same way it is today in 2020. It's cheaper to go 50 miles in an electric car than it is in a gasoline car. And it's much, much cheaper to maintain. So all those things that I did, I did them in an order. Pretty soon I saved money from doing all that cheap and easy stuff, the low-hanging fruit, if you will. Then I could afford to buy a solar oven. Mm. 
Then I could afford to buy a rain barrel to collect some rainwater. Then eventually in 1985, I bought a share in a wind farm. I bought solar hot water in 1985 for my home. I've been charging my car and running my house on solar since 1990. That's super impressive. So, you know, it's almost the 50th anniversary of, of the Earth Day movement, right? Like, how, I mean, what are your thoughts like sort of looking back on that period of time and what's changed or, or hasn't? I bring you some good news as regards that. From 1970 to date, we have four times the cars in L.A. and millions more people, yet we have a fraction of the smog. We made cars more energy efficient. We made cars pollute less. We made factories less polluting. All that stuff that they claimed wouldn't work, it all did work. And even with four times the cars and millions more people, there's a lot, lot less smog. You can see the hills every day. There's still a lot of work to be done. There's lots of people with asthma and lots of other very serious breathing problems. But we've shown that we can do it. We can do that on an international scale with climate change if we set about doing the, the work that must be done now. So, you know, I want to talk about your house, basically, and, and sort of that process a little more. Because, you know, in later years, I guess more recently, you know, your house was featured on a reality TV show. There, there have been a bunch of TV programs that have, that have come to visit you and to, to talk about and learn from your experiences of trying to make a really green and energy efficient home. I'm wondering, like, why you decided to invite the public in in that way to like a very personal space, right? That's where you live. It was my wife's idea. I was quite resistant to it. I didn't think uh, it, it would be a good idea to have a crew around all the time. And she was right and I was wrong. It was very good because in my past efforts, I had a show called Today's Environment that nobody watched. It was on Discovery Channel in the 90s. <laughs> it was very factual and dry and didn't attract a wider audience. But with her point of view and her resistance to some of these green things and her speaking for every man, every woman about some of the sometimes edgy things that I would want to do. It got a lot of people to watch and people would regularly come up to me to prove the success of the show that come up and say, I got a rain barrel and I love how you got to put it up on bricks and you get the spigot down, you know, below to water your garden. I love that solar oven. It has a little thermometer built into the cover and I really like that to watch the temperature and you realize with this level of detail people actually did those things and not just coming up to please you so we reached a lot of people we had nearly a million people every week watching the show and uh, we've had a few other streaming shows since then and it's I think it's good to use the media to promote sustainability because I don't know that there's time to go door to door if you can use the media responsibly which I've tried to do I think that's a very useful tool. I mean, what do you think of the role of, of celebrities in promoting environmental awareness or action on the climate crisis? Do you feel like it's a, a duty of anyone who has access to that media spotlight? Do you feel like it's a case-by-case basis? I'm just wondering kind of your, your philosophy there. Any citizen has a right to speak their mind, but with the access to the microphone, to the megaphone, you certainly have a great responsibility as well. You don't want to do anything reckless with that power that you have. You want to make sure you have all the right information before you speak in a loud manner on mic or on camera. So that's what I've been fortunate enough to do. I talk to people with PhD after their names, and I rely on the experts in peer-reviewed studies. And a lot of people protest and say, you're just an actor. You don't know anything. Just shut up. <laughs> I'm about to go on stage and do my song and dance as an actor, but imagine if the fire marshal came up and tapped me on the shoulder and said, there's a fire in the basement, we have to evacuate this theater. Am I supposed to go out and do a song and dance? Hmm. I couldn't in all good conscience do that. 
I have to tell them what the fire marshal has told me. And the fire marshal of those PhDs and Nobel laureates have told us about climate change and ocean acidification, the plastics in the ocean, and peer-reviewed studies follow that up. So that's what I've tried to do, be responsible, get the best information, and then disseminate it in a way that is efficient. Yeah, I do think there's such like an extreme urgency to this particular moment, right? You have the scientists saying that to avoid just sort of the most catastrophic effects of, of the climate crisis, you know, we need to cut, you know, fossil fuel pollution basically in half in about 10 years and then to net zero, you know, by about 2050 mid-century. So all those dates are coming up very soon. I guess I'm wondering how that lands with you, this sense of urgency that I really do think is kind of in the air right now. There's tremendous urgency because no matter what we do, there's so much in the pipeline now. There's so much heat already stored in the ocean mm-hmm. that we cannot change. So much CO2 in the atmosphere and elsewhere that is going to be emitted no matter what we do. But knowing that, we can't throw up our arms and go, well, there's nothing we can do. There's so much left that we still can save and we have to set about doing it now. You know, everybody can do something. Not everybody can afford a lead platinum home or a fancy electric car like I drive today, but I couldn't either when I started. For most of my life, I lived in two-bedroom homes, and so do what you can. A lot of people just live in apartments. There's things you can do in an apartment. Energy-efficient thermostat, you know, energy-efficient light bulbs, weather stripping, bike riding when weather and fitness permit, uh, public transportation if it's available near you. There's much that anybody can do, and we all need to do it and do something now and save what's left. You know, I, I did read that you bike quite a lot and that you've even biked to Oscar parties. Is that right? I have. I've gone to the Oscar event more than once on a bicycle, and I've gone on the subway. This year, we did not. We took the electric car. Rochelle didn't want to go in the rain <laughs> on the subway, and she was probably smarter than me in that case. I would have come in soaked like a wet dog the way I did a few years ago when I rode my <laughs> bike in the rain. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Um, and then, you know, you're, I, I read also that you're a, a, a vegan now. Is that right? I am a vegan, and that's a good way to eat as much plant-based food as you can eat. Even if you're not a vegan, uh, eat as much plant-based food and as little meat as possible. There's a lot of energy and water involved and CO2 involved in producing a pound of beef. There's a lot less energy and water and space involved in producing a pound of lentils or a pound of broccoli. So mm-hmm. we need to eat as much plant-based food as possible. No matter what your diet is, try that. See if you like it. Try it one day a week. And if you can do it one day a week, maybe you'll want to do it more. We've you know, mostly been talking about um, personal actions, like things that we all can do to help combat the, the climate crisis. I also do think that there's a growing recognition that, that those things, even if everyone in the world um, you know, sort of jumped on and made their homes more efficient and went vegan or vegetarian tried to drive less, fly less, all those things, that it wouldn't add up to the scale of change that's really needed to end the fossil fuel era, more or less. And, and I guess I'm wondering how you draw those that line between um, you know, individual actions and what we can all do versus the systemic change that you know, a lot of engineers and policy experts would say absolutely must happen if we're going to truly tackle this thing. They're correct. All the personal action in the world isn't enough. To have this discussion about climate change, it needs to be around a table that has not one, not two, but three legs. Otherwise, the table will fall over. And those three legs are personal action, which we know we must do, legislative change, and then corporate responsibility. Hmm. Those three legs are all essential to making proper change. What do you make of the youth 
um, climate activist movement, you know, especially Greta Thunberg and um, the Sunrise Movement in the U.S.? Greta is a hero. She really has made me, you know, change my game a little bit. You know, I rarely fly, but uh, since she came on the scene, I don't think I've flown once. <laughs> I'm going to try to not fly at all now. Not just rarely. I'm going to try to stop flying. Wow, that's uh, a big, I mean, that's a so big far, step. It's a very big step. You know, there's some things that I can do here in my lead platinum home to, to eliminate the use of natural gas in the house. And that's because of Greta Thunberg. I thought, what can I, I have to do something else. And that something else is making changes in my home. I mean, not that any person's legacy has to be one thing, but I wonder as, as you're looking sort of back on your career, whether you think the films and the, the TV's, you know, programs that you've been in, whether those are what you'll be most um, sort of credited for or whether your environmental activism is your legacy as a person in the public eye. I certainly have enjoyed my uh, 50 plus years as an actor, and I hope people remember that. But I'm much prouder of my work as an environmental activist since 1970. And uh, I hope I've been able to reach some people over those years. And uh, seems to be some cases where I have. And I'm, I'm very, very proud of that. So I hope I'll, I'll be remembered for that. Well, Ed Begley Jr., thank you so much for, um, for joining us. It was really a delight. Thank you for having me on. Ed Begley Jr. is an actor based in Hollywood. Next week on Heat of the Moment, Swedish teenager Greta Thunberg has helped ignite a global youth movement that's energizing a new generation of activists. We'll travel to the Philippines to meet with one activist who is pushing for action. I don't want to hear that you're just touched by my story. I want you to go home and tell my story to your family members and tell them that we should really do something and have an impact in our leaders, in our government. That's it for this episode of Heat of the Moment, which is a co-production of FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. The Climate Investment Funds is a nonpartisan group that supports climate action. Political views and opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent those of the Climate Investment Funds or its partners. Our podcast is produced by myself and Emily Johnson, with help from Scott Andrews and Dan Haverty. Special thanks to KUER and KCPW in Salt Lake City and WABE in Atlanta for their assistance. The director of FP Studios is Rob Sachs. I'm John Sutter. Thank you for listening.